Um, we're connected. That means music is on its way. Call ten years after that usually usher us in uh, when everything's working right, and uh, that signifies the Friday edition here of the Radio Ranch. And it's uh, Roger Sales, your host and teacher and moderator and whatever else I do around here. And uh, then a group of folks on with us already from some of them even from the Gadsden area today. And uh, we hope Brent's going to join us. I hadn't heard from him yet this morning. That's kind of unusual. Brent, you joined us yet or not? I don't know what could have happened to that guy. That's pretty unusual that I don't hear from him, and he might be a, a MIA today. So we'll just uh, plow through and see. I don't know that that's ever happened in all the years we've been doing shows. So hopefully everything's all right there in the winter's camp. Uh, so we're at the Radio Ranch and on the Eurofolk Radio Network. Glad to be there and uh, following uh, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. Uh, kind of a yeah, somewhat interesting show he had on there this morning. That was a new guy I don't think I've heard him have on before. And uh, so we got uh, Jeff is to, and I were talking right before uh, right before we went on the air. And you're over there in Gadsden at the the bivouac the bivouac hotel. Is that what the name of it is? The Gadsden Eel Inn Suites. There we go. Nice little uh, medium town hotel, no doubt. And uh, you ran into Brent Bachman last night, so you got to meet Brent. And I'm sure y'all had a got to sit there and break bread and have a nice conversation together. And of course, I I don't know Jeff. Jeff and I have never met personally, but Brent and I knew each other years ago in Atlanta. And uh, I was really tickled to death when he came back into the picture and found me on the air somewhere a while back and started joining us. And it's uh, it's wonderful to have some of these old friends from those old days hanging around and uh, uh it's just nice to know that you've had a relationship with somebody for that long you know long time relationships are uh something you should cherish these days i think so uh with, with so much in common with yep with so much in common for sure uh so i see people joining us brent if you uh brent uh, winters if you come on just say hello and uh, we'll be happy that you're here because I'm a little bit concerned when I don't hear from you ahead of time, honestly. Very hey, un- hey, Roger. Yes, Lisa. How you doing, sweetie? Good. How are you? I'm not too bad this morning, all in all. I happened to mention on Jim's show yesterday with Gaddy on uh-huh. that, that if they could happen to find a way to live broadcast the show tomorrow on here, and since this is yours... Would that be fine with you if they uh, could? Wouldn't have. I, I would have no problem with it at all. Uh, it's a, an open platform. I'm, in fact, I'm going to use it this afternoon on a consult. Uh, and it's a wonderful little platform. And uh, we should probably promote Jitsi. If you wanted to, what you would do is go to Jitsi.org. If you wanted to set up your own, 
I haven't done it. Paul did this for us that morning. We had problems with Skype or whatever the situation was, and he said, wait a minute, and set this up for us, and boom, here we are, and we've been using it ever since. It's a very nice platform, and uh, it's got a lot of attributes, obviously, where we can have a lot of people on here and group conversations and share screens and have a chat room and all that kind of stuff. If you wanted to set one up for yourself, all you'd do is promote Jitsi a little bit here is go to jitsi j-i-t-s-i dot org i believe is their website and i guess you just set up a room this one of course is ppn studios but you could do uh uh you know whatever you wanted to name your room and you got your own con your your own communications channel which is somewhat private and off the beaten path i doubt if they're monitoring jitsi uh you know like they would some of the other uh main communication type uh platforms so it's a neat little platform i'd have no problem at all with that uh so we'll see if they want to do it if they want to do it, it's fine um i don't have any conflict with it brett popped on here cc uh-huh mr brent did you join us finally Mr. Common Law Lawyer? I did. Ah, there you are. Well, I was a little concerned about you because I didn't get a response from you this morning when I give you a little wave. And so uh, that's pretty unusual. I'm thinking uh, I hope everything's all right. Glad to know that it is. Well, when you messaged me this morning, I didn't have Internet because I'm in the wilderness. And I had to drive down the road about three miles. I got a bar or two here, and I'm sitting in the car talking and relaxing, so everything's okay. I just couldn't respond until I got down here to the hard road. It's uh, you, your your signal's real good today. It's pretty strong considering you're in a wilderness type. I got to go find a hot spot situation. <laughs> well, I'm looking. You know, sometimes you get out in these uh, remote areas. If you look hard enough and you can see far enough you can see a tower on top uh. of a mountain and i think i see one up ahead a few miles so that's and if you can get within the line of sight of those things like i'm looking at it now sure sure i think that's what i'm seeing yeah you're tagged into it you then know it's it works, yeah. it's interesting uh, my days in the record business um for instance some of the stories that i remember hearing that stuck with me uh a&m pretty pretty big label uh you know, it's been very successful. They've had a, a really, really solid group of artists for a long time. Uh, A&M stands for Albert and Moss. Did you know that? Did you know that Herb Albert uh, was one of the no. owners of A&M Records? And what happened is, is he he was a I didn't Me- know that. Well, he was a Mexican trumpet player, you know, and he put out this this record called The Lonely Bull. And there was a guy that used to do what I did, which was promote records in the early days of the industry, named Jerry Moss, a a Jewish guy. And uh, Jerry Moss recognized the potential of Herb Alpert's record and started promoting it, and that's where A&M Records came from. But they said in the old days like that that what they do is just exactly what you said, is they just drive around in a car with a trunk full of records, and they'd go hunt for radio towers and when they saw a radio tower they'd go hunt for the studio and go in and sit down and try and get the record played 
and uh, that was where the the whole A and M and those guys were very successful early on, of course, with the success of Herb Alpert, and they took a a lot of that money, the profits, and they bought a bunch of land in this little part of Los Angeles that nobody wanted, called the La Brea Tar Pits, and they did pretty well yeah. there. Well, from I only know what I read, Roger. This is a kind of a shocker in a way, but in a way it isn't. Herb Albert was a Mexican. Was it? Just like his partner, w- Moss, he was Jewish. Oh, is that right? Well, it wouldn't surprise yeah, he me. he promoted himself as a Mexican. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, to, to make money. It went, went with the music, you know. But now, again, that's what I read on the Internet. And I read that years ago. Uh, years ago? Oh, maybe four or five years ago. I don't know. You run across things without looking for it. My, I remember his records, and I remember the Tijuana Taxi and A Taste of Honey was another record. Yes, album, right. An album right, right. Uh, you know yeah, what? He, he was popular. He yeah, re- uh, he's, a, he's a heck of a family man, too. He, was, he really, uh, uh, he and uh, Carlos Santana is another musician. Of course, he, I, I believe he was Mexican, but tremendous family men. Uh, that didn't let the industry and their popularity and fame and everything jaundice them too badly, uh, which is a credit to them, whatever their ethnicity may be, really. Because it's very easy you to know, get sidetracked. We had a fellow that dad used to buy seed. Uh, I, let me just say that again. It's very yeah. easy. From my personal home. experience, it's very easy for get... fame and fortune to sidetrack uh-huh. you in your life. Uh-huh. So go ahead. I'll. We got a little delay there. I want you to oh, talk yeah. about your dad. Oh, dad used to buy seed corn from this fella over in uh, Montrose and Cumberland County, and his name was uh, uh, Denver Darling. Denver Darling. <laughs> his last name was Darling, and uh, he he sold seed corn, which. You can make a lot of money in our part of the world selling seed corn because everybody at the farm needed it. And it, as time has gone on, people used to make their own seed corn, and there were companies that sprung up with the hybrids and all, you know. Well, this guy sold seed corn, and Dad would go over to his house and uh, visit, try to cut some kind of a deal. And he, when he'd go over there, this fellow, Denver Darling, had corn plants all over the inside of his house in the wintertime. Uh, experimenting with corn and, and uh, cross-pollinating it and all that, you know. And uh, found out later, and I remember, it was, it was 1981. In 1981, um, I met a lady that uh, told me she was taking care of Denver Darling. I said, well, what happened to him? He said, oh, he's in the hospital, and we don't think he's going to make it. Well, unbeknownst to people around home, Denver Darling, wrote a lot of songs and was very famous with Kate Smith and uh, Chet Atkins at one time. Huh. And uh, he, matter of fact, he signed on, the way I get the story, he signed on with Kate Smith. Chet Atkins and Kate Smith signed on with a record company in New York City, and Denver Darling signed on at the same time. And if I said the name of the company, you'd all, you'd say, well, yeah, I know what that record, but I can't remember the name of it because I'm not into that. It was RCA Victor or one of them. Probably what, that's probably the one it was. That's pretty. That's and, a uh, that's a pretty wrote, big, that's uh, a pretty darn big label uh, conglomerate company right there. Go ahead. I had yeah. a chance to work with them one time and didn't, yeah, well, didn't take the offer. It, well, of course, Kate Smith 
was made they made her famous and Chet Atkins and they were looking for apparently they were looking for a guitar player that could compete with um oh can't think of the fellow's name but he's the fellow that wrote 16 tons Tennessee Ernie uh, Ford. Ernie Ernie Ford made yeah. that song famous yeah Tennessee Ernie Ford well this other this fellow uh they, RCA Victor if that's the one they were looking for a guitar player that could match um Merle Travis, that was his name, Merle Travis. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they said to him, they said to Chet Atkins, they said, uh, we're looking for somebody that can play guitar like Merle Travis and, uh, and sing. He said, can you play guitar? I said, yeah. And uh, I learned how to play. I, I copied Merle Travis, Chet Atkins. And Chet Atkins really did. He, he copied Merle Travis's style. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the three finger where you play the bass at the same time. Right. Well, uh, they said, "Well, you can, you can uh, play guitar like Merle Travis." He said, uh, "Can you sing like Merle Travis?" And he said, "Well, I can sing like Merle Travis, but that's not very good singing, as you know." Well, they hired him, and of course, Chet Atkins never did sing, but he became famous. Well, this other fellow, Denver Darling, wrote the Wabash Cannonball. That was probably his most famous song. Oh yeah. And then he went back to Nashville after World War II, and he wrote a whole lot of songs uh, promoting uh, the idea that the Japs were evil, which, of course, they were, no doubt in that, and uh, firing people up. And then he just all of a sudden threw in the sponge and went home and uh, went back to Montrose in Cumberland County and started farming and and he got to selling seed corn. And he's one of the few people I ever heard of that really got well-known and then just gave it all up. Walked and away. you ever do. You know? mm -hmm. That's right. No, it's addicting. Yeah, just walked away. Yeah, maybe he saw that. I don't know what he saw, but it it, it comes to a, an end that isn't always pleasant. And Merle Travis was that way. He, he got famous and went out to Hollywood, and, of course, he was playing his hillbilly songs, and he was in the movies with, uh, uh, the cowboy movies with Gene Autry and all that. But then he got to drinking and it got to him finally and kind of pulled him down out of his career. But his son, his son uh, became famous. I can't remember his name. He's I say famous, but I can't remember his name, but I remember him. He was a handsome son of a gun and played guitar good as his dad. But now he weighs about 300 pounds and, and been divorced two or three times. That's the way that works. You know. But um, now back to business. I don't mean to bore you with all these. Uh, That's all right. There all was these histories of well, these people the, that were. There, you know, there's a very topical example this week of that uh, with somebody that really stood up and made a statement, and that is a guy named Travis Tritt. You're familiar with him? Kind of a modern. But a pretty darn big country star, him, Travis Tritt. Well, he's uh, he's okay. contemporary, but he's very very famous. In fact, I he's from Marietta, Georgia, and uh, I'm one of the guys that I used to work with in the record business that worked for Warner Brothers. Kid from Copper Hill, Tennessee, named Danny Davenport, uh, is the guy that discovered Travis Tritt and uh, got him signed on with Warner Brothers and got a pretty substantial signing fee, finder's fee for that, if I remember right. But uh, Travis Tritt's gone on to uh, uh, have a very illustrious career for many years. I mean, this is, you know, I was back in the record business a long time ago, and that was when I was in there that he was first coming up. And uh, so he was 
on a couple of i know he was on tucker carlson this week and and a couple of other pretty big programs and the reason for it is because he's he he said on i saw the interview with tucker and he said we've done 75 shows this year uh and he said i got I got uh, I started getting communications from my fans that we'd go to they'd come to want to come to see me where I was scheduled and they wouldn't let them in the venue because they don't have a mask or they're not vaccinated. And so he just made a public statement and a, and a policy change for his own uh, efforts that if there's any venue that wouldn't allow fans in without a pa- vaccine passport or a mask, he wouldn't do the show. And he got on and said, he said, look, it's not the state health officials. It's not the federal officials. It's these people that are the promoters and the ones that own the venues that are doing this. And I just flat refuse to play at any of them. Mm-hmm. They're going to do that from to my fans. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't ugly. He, he didn't mm-hmm. get on an anti-vax or anything else. He just put his foot down and said, I'm not playing those shows anymore. And uh, he, of course, got a lot of backlash from it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, but he handled himself very well. I was really impressed uh, with the short clip I saw with him on uh, on Tucker. So for mm. whatever for whatever that's well, worth, that's good for him. Well, some of, some of these people are starting to step up and say no, you know, and uh, it's quite refreshing. May not be many of them sure yet, take but a long time. Though. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. It's taken way mm-hmm. too long, and uh, but the the I think the size of the awakening. I even saw a headline or a story about it last night. Uh, the size of the awakening is getting to be uh, substantial mm-hmm. at this point. I think they've pushed just a little too far. Finally, mm-hmm. finally. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I hope so. I, in the meantime. In the meantime, we just got to keep all of us, each one of us, has to keep our head above water and keep doing what we're doing in the midst of the madness. You can't control the madness. You can't control the spirit of Antichrist, and that's what it is. Yep. When I say spirit of Antichrist, I don't mean that some Antichrist is going to come. I mean that there is a spirit. There is one spirit of Antichrist. There, there, are, there are many Antichrists, but there's one spirit of Antichrist, and I find no place in the Bible where it says there is the Antichrist. Now, there are a lot of people that say, but I can show you how that works. Well, yeah, I've, I've read all that, and I've heard all that, and, and it is possible. It is possible, but it, I like to stick to what the Bible says, and the, that's a theological construct to say that there is the Antichrist. There is the man of sin. Oh, yeah, there's one of those. And people say, well, that's the Antichrist. Well, you don't know that. He is another Antichrist. And uh, there are many. I talked to one the other evening. He looked like a very nice fellow. Very nice fellow. And he knew his stuff. He was educated at Edinburgh, Scotland. Had a PhD. He understood uh, Christian theology, Christian history. It started out as a Presbyterian, turned into a Roman Catholic, and now he's a Lutheran. Say, well, and he's a nice fellow. Don't get me wrong. Nice fellow. He doesn't seem to be hurting anybody, doing his work. And But what is an antichrist? That's the question. And folk have a have an idea about it that anti, anti, the word, the word, the preposition anti means against. Well, that's not fundamentally what it means in the Greek tongue. Now, we've taken it over into English and uh, we've twisted it a little bit and given it a different shade of meaning. We stressed a different thing about it. But in the New Testament, Written in Greek, it's a Greek word. It appears four times. Well, the preposition appears bunches of times, but as Antichrist attached to the word Christos, which means anointed one, Meshach in the Hebrew, but anointed one, the one that's besmeared with oil, besmeared with oil. That's what that word means, Christos, and 
Um, um, the anti-Christos, anti in the Greek tongue doesn't mean against, like anti-aircraft guns. See, we, we say in English that means against, against aircraft. Well, that's true. But in Greek, it has a primary meaning that you see everywhere it's used, and it's used dozens of times in the New Testament. It means, uh, it means in place of or face-to-face with, or mirror image, often. Sometimes it's used to, to speak of those things that are copied. Like a Xerox copy in Greek would be anti, an anti-copy. It is a mirror image of uh, a face-to-face kind of an image, but anti means in place of. In place of, for instance, and this is a, a, a pronounced illustration. I don't pick on Rome anymore than I pick on anybody else. Ro- the Roman Pope and the priest are just... Uh, certain antichrists, there are many others in the Protestant world and in the non-Roman world and in the Islamic world and the communist world. What is an antichrist? An antichrist is somebody who says that I have all power and authority here, wherever I am. I have all. There is no appeal above me. I'm it. In this church, I run things. That's antichrist. A lot of Baptists do that. A lot of assembly God preachers do that. that. The governments of those churches are often one man shows by tradition. That's the way they do it. That is antichrist and it's evil. I don't care what doctrine they're teaching. I don't even care. They may be Christian folk. They're acting like antichrist and that's what they are because they've said, I am in the place of Jesus Christ here in this particular venue or jurisdiction. The Pope of Rome says that. Pope of Rome says, I am in place of Jesus Christ down here on earth. I am antichrist. In Latin, vicar of Christ. That means in place of Christ. The word vice, like vice president, in place of the president. Same root word in Latin, or same Latin root. But in English, it's uh, when we say antichrist, we're talking in the Bible. The Bible doesn't translate that word. Uh, It just transliterates it. It repeats the sound of the Greek word, antichrist. Well, that doesn't help us much. That just makes us act think we're talking like uh, Greek people, but it means in place of, instead of, and I also use the illustration, Roger, and we're talking about Antichrist, there are many, all over. I, I met one the other night. He thinks that he's in charge. He thinks he's got all the answers. He thinks that um, nobody, here's the bottom line. Of course, we all think we got the answers about something. But bottom line, if you say, I am in place of Jesus Christ, and uh, there is no appeal above me, I'm it right here in this realm. That's what the King of England said, Henry VIII, Charles I, Charles II, got his head chopped off for saying it. Parliament finally got in charge. That's divine right of kings. There's many, there are many phrases that describe Antichrist. And there are Antichrists even in insane asylums. I've been there visiting people and seeing Antichrist. People who say, uh, I'm Jesus Christ. Yeah, chain smoking cigarettes, rubbing their heads. I'm Jesus Christ. Yes, I am. I'm Je- That's Antichrist. But it gets out of hand. It can get out of hand. Adolf Hitler uh, said, I have all power in Germany. Nobody has power above me. The legislature of the, the, of the country said there's no appeal beyond Hitler. Everybody in the country seemed to be saying they took an oath to obey him and not God. Well, that's Antichrist. Even though he lived in a Christian world in Germany where there were Lutherans and Romanists, they all, they all fell in line, and that's Antichrist. So when I say Antichrist, and when I say these people that do this, these corporations are antichrist, we find there is no appeal above what they say. Now, you can get away from them, like this uh, Travis Tripp. Is that his name? You tell yeah. me his name. I don't yeah, remember. you know, that's correct. I'm not, a, 
I don't follow them, but it, he got away from him. Well, you can do that if the world's wide enough. Got away from him, got away from those corporations. But when it comes to, I just heard the other day, when it comes to this vax, uh, speedy trial, let's try that. Uh, at common law, not not just according to the common long before, centuries before our Constitution, men in the English-speaking world had a right to a speedy trial that the law recognized. Well, you have a right to it. The question is, does the law recognize it? Well, they never really had. They tried and tried and tried. And the other thing was, of course, there were no punishments in prisons. And even in America in the early days, prison wasn't punishment. Now, they'd hold you in a jail till they tried you so you wouldn't get away. And that, that's biblical. That's okay. I'd do that. But uh, And then, of course, we have uh, habeas corpus because we believe false imprisonment is very ugly, very bad. Why? Well, because of the covenant of God that says scatter over the face of the land. If if a government has the power to falsely imprison, if anybody does, uh, that squelches to that degree the, the covenant of God to scatter. That's what that does. Bab, uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, that's what that's all about. God doesn't like false imprisonment. That's why punishment, using prisons for punishment, is evil, evil, evil. And it's against the law of God. It's against, that means it's against God. He hates it with a pink purple passion because it's against his will, the will of the sovereign, the ultimate sovereign is law. By the way, there is no appeal beyond beyond the maker of all things. He is the court of last resort, but men cannot claim that position in any realm. Well, it all started, this came to a forefront, and in our times, after the medieval times, when John Knox, John Knox, he was a Roman priest, and he had been... Uh, He'd been, I've told this story, I tell stories over and over, but I guess I probably add to them, maybe somebody can learn something else about them. But John Knox, uh, he was a Roman priest. Did you want to say something, Roger? I did. I did not or, know, or, and I've heard you mention John Knox a number of times, and, you know, the uh, thing with uh, Anne, uh, Anne, Queen of Scots, but uh, I did not know he was a oh, Roman yeah. priest. All the reformer, almost all the reformers of the Protestant Reformation were former, former Roman priests. Is that right? And that's that's a good thing. Oh yeah, almost all of them. But the bad thing, there's a bad thing that comes with that. Uh, and in in the what we call the Reformed world of Protestantism, which I have always identified without using labels, but that's what it boils down to. The Reformed world, uh, Roman priests set set the, the tone. They, of course, they protested against Rome, and uh, they said, no, that's not the way it is, and for a number of fundamental reasons. And the Antichrist was one of them. Of course, the Reformers recognized that the Pope was an Antichrist. And so John Knox, he was a Roman priest. The trouble with Roman priests is they're, they're educated, highly educated, still are today, if it's done right, uh, lawyers of the Code of Justinian, the canon law of the Church of Rome. And because of that, whatever they do, they see the world through those eyes. That's like John Calvin. John Calvin was a Roman priest and the foremost canon civil law lawyer in Europe in his day. And as was his father before him, educated at Orleans in France, a big law school there for the Code of Justinian, the Roman law. Well, everything that Calvin did, and Calvin did not live in a common law country, and everything he did, he just, uh, he made Protestantism in Switzerland, uh, the, the, the Rome, the Roman Protestantism. And in other words, he approached all of life 
from the point of view of the law of the city instead of the law of the land or common law. He didn't know anything about it. And he even said, he admitted for all of his learning, he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible, a detailed commentary, learned the languages, and uh, every, every book but the book of Revelation. He wouldn't touch it. There's a funny reason for that. But John Calvin was a Roman priest, so all of the words we still have in Christendom, the the major words are, are words from the Latin world of the Roman law. Words like communion, that's a Latin word from the Roman law. And... Uh, uh, Sublaparianism. I know people think that sounds like a Labrador retriever, but that's not <laughs> it. But all these fancy Latin words that nobody cares about. Sublaparianism and all that kind of stuff. Let's see. Do you hear that phone ringing, Roger? I, I, do, I do not. Oh, here it is. Oh, well, good. I don't want you to hear it. At any rate, uh, he said, now, wait a minute. He began to listen to the... He said, I think that's right. The Bible didn't come from the church. The church came from the Bible. That's a fundamental truth. What is the Reformation, you know. Rome says the Bible, she produced the Bible. Well, if Rome produced the Bible and the Roman priesthood produced the Bible, well, then the Roman priesthood has authority over the Bible. Well, John Knox said, no, that seems backward. No, the Word of God is the Word of God. Nobody has authority over that. And it's up to every man to decide. Well, his job, he was. He converted, born from above, as we say. And John Knox got a job uh, as a bodyguard. He was a <laughs> he was kind of a long-limbed feller, and uh, so he carried a claymore. A claymore is a, one of those big broadswords that people use to make split personalities. I mean, uh, William Wallace said he could use his uh, claymore that's the scottish word it means claymore means big sword that's in in braid scots and william wallace boasted he could split a man from the crown of his head to his crotch with one blow like a fish to be broiled and he could of course if you were six feet ten inches tall like him i suppose that would have been that hard but knox wasn't that big but he was pretty long arms so he was bodyguard for george wishard and george wishard was a preacher of course, they wanted to kill him, and eventually they burnt him alive. But uh, he stood in front of George Wishard with a broadsword, a claymore, while George Wishard was out in the fields preaching. Well, they couldn't stop it. So finally, they turned up the head of a cardinal, a Roman cardinal up there in Scotland by the name of Beaton. His name was Beaton. And uh, the Pope had, uh, had him under his thumb, and Beaton would do anything the Pope said. And He said, I want John Knox dead, and I want all the Protestants, all the people that are leaving the church to be either converted or killed. So Cardinal Beaton went to work, and uh, I just went off. No, you're there. Oh, I'm here. Okay. Cardinal Beaton went to work, and uh, and then the Pope said to uh, the King of France, look, I want you to take your fleet over and surround Scotland. Put a blockade up. we got to stop this. We're losing too much money. So the French fleet went over, and they knew that John Knox was, and they also had ground forces going after these these um, Protestants in Scotland, and they were just murdering them. I mean, they were they were hunting them down like animals, the dragoons, and shooting them, and and well, not shooting them. Uh, mostly they used swords in those days and pikes. That uh, gunpowder was around, but it wasn't that sophisticated. But they were just slaughtering them like animals. And uh, John Knox was some of the other. Protestants were holed up in a castle, a place called St. Andrews, St. Andrew's Castle on the mm -hmm. 
west coast of Scot- coast of Scotland. Scotland. The French fleet fleet shoot showed up. Isn't that where the found out he was in there and so they started bombarding. Isn't that where yeah. the big golf deal is? St. Andrews in Scotland. The the, the you know I'm not, I've never been over there, but I've heard that. Yeah. Okay. St. Andrews is an uh, important place. See, Andrews, uh, Andrew, the disciple Andrew in ancient, the history of uh, British Christianity, Andrew, disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, became the the patron saint of Scotland. That's why so many of them named their children, or in the past have named their children Andrew. I mean, uh, uh, Andy Jackson was named Andrew because he was, uh, was Scots-Irish. He was from Ireland, but he was of Scottish descent. And, of course, the people in Northern Ireland were Presbyterians because that's what Scottish people were after they left Rome. They called, well, other people called them the Presbyterians. Presbytos, the word presbytos is out of the New Testament, and it means simply the gray-bearded man. We would say elder, elder. Uh, and because the Presbyterians rejected the rule of the Pope, as Antichrist, see, this This figures into their church government. They rejected the rule of the Pope because that's a one-man show. That's Antichrist, no appeal beyond him. So they said, no, we're going to have church government with elders, a plurality of elders. And so people begin to call them Presbyterians because that was the New Testament word, but it just means, means elders. And uh, the Presbyterian church today, all over the world, wherever they are, they... Use, use elders, to, and, and they have a certain organization, which is contrary and against the divine right of kings and the whole idea of, uh, like a lot of the Baptists and the Assembly of God and the Pentecostal churches and the TV churches, those are one-man shows. Listen, if you want to know, if you really want to know who understands their Christianity, look closely at the way their church government operates. Because if people, even if they are Christian, they don't understand the Christianity if it's a one-man show. And there are a lot of antichrist in, in uh, Baptist and Protestant churches that are that way. You know, the, 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 dominant, the dominant government of the religious institutions of a country will always be the government of that country. The dominant form of government of the religious institutions of a country will always be the fundamental government of that country. That's why our common law government is has been so powerful here because all the people that came to America rejected the, the idea of a one-man show for church government. That's really a simplicity of why they, the, the common law was able to thrive so much. See, the common law is that way too. It's never been a one-man show and that's biblical. And people say, well, why is it that the common law, which came from the north of Europe when the tribes migrated to England and Britain, why is it that the common law is so much like the government of the Bible? Well, the reason, the reasons for that are probably twofold, but they're lost in the fog of antiquity. But there's a lot to be said about that. Who are these people that lived on the north coast of Europe? That's one of the questions that are asked. But back to Andy Jackson, they bombarded the castle and... Uh, the, the, the first Sunday he was there before the bombardment and they took him prisoner and put an iron collar around his neck and made him a galley slave and uh, on a French warship for four and a half years. It uh, deformed his clavicle and it ruined his health being a galley slave for four and a half years. But that's when he came back to Scotland and, and he took over Scotland. The people 
listen to him after that. That's he, the way it goes, by the way. And if your life is hard, oh, go ahead, Roger. You talking about John Knox? This happened to. You talking about John Knox that this happened yeah, to? Uh-huh. Okay, you said Andy Jackson, right. so I didn't want right. to get that get, get confused yeah, with the audience. I was still thinking. I wanted to get back. To, well, good thing you brought that up. I wanted to get back to Andy, but I probably won't. You know, Andy, his favorite song, and this this goes to the Protestant Reformation. His favorite song was "How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, Was Laid for Your Faith in His Excellent Word." What more can he say than to you, he has said, than to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And that song extols the word of God written. And that's what the Protestant Reformation did. It said, no, we, the word of God stands above all men. The priesthood of Rome does not interpret the word of God for us. They are not above the word of God. And they, of course, add to the word of God. And that song was a song of the Protestant Reformation, and he wanted that song at his funeral, and he tried to get it. Well, they sang it and all at his funeral at the Hermitage there in Nashville, but he had a parrot he kept in the house for years, and the parrot got to cussing during the uh, during the funeral service. Well, that was kind of a revelation of what kind of a mouth Andy Jackson had. Well, you say, well, then he wasn't Christian. No, 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 no. Christians aren't people that don't sin. Christians are people that struggle against sin and try to overcome it. That's what a Christian man and woman is. And we, uh, and if you aren't, if you aren't a Christian man or woman, you won't struggle against it that much, and it will eventually wipe you out. But Andy had that problem apparently from. And, the only evidence I have of it is, is this parrot, and I know parrots will repeat what people say and if they're living in somebody's house well that's what they're going to say and so and though he liked that song apparently and well that's back to the antichrist so john knox preached this sermon the first sunday he got there they said would you be our chaplain well he was excited about that because he had been a roman priest and nobody ever asked him to do anything in in the protestant world except be a bodyguard for george wishard who they finally burned at the stake so that job was over and had to he was hoping he could have an influence. Well, that happened, but it didn't happen that till after the French uh, Navy, at the behest of the Pope of Rome, who controlled the French government and Navy, uh, put him in an iron collar and put him down in the, in the galley of a warship and kept him there four and a half years. And he watched most of his friends and, uh, die down there from disease and starvation. And he lived through it. And uh, one time... One time he was sitting, they'd sit on these benches, you know, and they had these long, long oars and they didn't have anything on but a breech cloth and they were in chains down there, you know, and they rowing. And uh, one of the French officers came down and, and uh, of course, all the prisoners, most of them were Scottish Protestants and they were using them. And if they died, they didn't care. And they, they gave a, had a little statue of the Virgin Mary. And gave it to the first fellow and said, I want uh, sitting on the bench, said, I want you to kiss this and pass it down. I want every man here to kiss it before battle. And uh, it came to John Knox, and he was sitting, uh, he had a window seat, apparently. <laughs> he was sitting next to the bulkhead, and they handed him the Statue of Mary. And he, he looked at it and threw it out the window, uh-uh. that little hole where the <laughs> oars are. <laughs> Oh, 
they came down on him like a ton of bricks. And he said, uh, they said, why'd you do that for? He said, well, shucks, she's a, she's a mediator between me and Jesus Christ, you say, so let her swim. <laughs> she can swim. Well, of course, she didn't swim, probably. Probably made a stone or something. But Knox uh, got through that. But here's the point, and the Bible makes this clear throughout. And after that, after that, it terribly, he, in, in a prisoner exchange, he was, he was brought back. But I forget what the circumstances were of that, but in some kind of an exchange. And he lived on to dominate the entire Scottish culture. Domin not even because he tried. Mary, Queen of Scots, outlawed him. That means anybody that finds him has a duty to kill him or bring him in. She declared him an outlaw outside the protection of the law. He was in France because he was afraid to get killed. But he finally realized that they can't, she can't do anything to me. He came back. Nobody tried to kill him. They had parades for him, I mean, figuratively speaking. And then he went and he asked for a meeting with Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, he said, here's the way it works. Now, Mary, Queen of Scots was a, was a striking, strikingly, a striking appearing woman. She was six feet tall. She had auburn hair and green eyes. And she was exceedingly promiscuous, dangerous, and murderous, but came across like girls do, like, like Queen Elizabeth did. Queen Elizabeth wasn't a powerful queen. And every time the, some other monarch of Europe came to her with a complaint, she'd say, well, I can't do nothing. I'm just a woman. I can't control Sir Walter Raleigh as he plunders your ships. I'm just a woman. That was her line. And that's how she got done what she wanted to get done, too. Well, that's the way Mary Queen of Scots was. So Knox went in to see her. She was crying, tears coming down. She says, I, I, I perceive that my people will obey you and not me. And he said, look, madam, he said, look, madam, I would be to God that they would, the Scottish people would obey God and that you and I would obey God. Well, my conscience is my conscience is not so my conscience. I've heard that one before. He said, madam, madam, your conscience is misinformed and a misinformed conscience is dangerous. Well, my conscience, she kept saying, my conscience, my conscience, that when somebody starts talking that way, that's a sign of evil. Now, is your conscience important? Yes. Even the confession of the old Scottish Presbyterian church, even the confession says uh, the most quoted phrase from the Westminster confession that uh, God alone is Lord of uh, the individual conscience. That is true. But don't depend upon your conscience for your final rule. You can make beg like a dog. Uh, if your conscience is not informed with the word of God, you're dangerous. I don't care how good you look, and I don't care how successful things have been so far. It's going to come to a bad end. I'm I've read enough history and old enough and watched it that I, I believe that to be true. And there's plenty of testimony of it in the Bible as well. David David went into the temple once, King David, and he said, uh, God, I can't, I can't understand why the wicked prosper. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it look like they're winning? And then he said, the Lord showed him the end of these wicked, prosperous people. And when you see their end, wait, seldom do people see that. You take somebody from Hollywood, Roger, somebody from Hollywood that drops out of the scene and you don't hear about them anymore. Well, what happened? Well, their, their, their end came and it wasn't pretty and Hollywood didn't want to promote that. 
dad said last time I was home, I repeat it often now. I said this, I think, a few weeks ago on here. When I'd be at home, dad used to pray and we'd all leave. Well, dad's trying to kind of pass that along to other people, and he thinks I can pray. So he said, well, Brent, you pray. And I prayed, and then I got done praying, and we were all standing around getting ready to leave. And Dad said, he just piped up, and he said, uh, hear me well, dear Christian friend. A godless life brings a godless end. So keep the faith and in pursuit, or trust in Christ is wisdom's root. That's what he said. I, you notice, I remembered. I forgot that last line last time I said yes, it. Yes, you did. I got it now. I call him. He, he, likes po- <laughs> he likes poetry. And so uh, he'll come up with one of his favorite poems was um, a to a louse. No, yeah, to a mouse. Well, to a louse and to a mouse. He liked both of those. And uh, those were Robbie Burns' poems. And he also liked uh, uh, Dangerous Dan McGrew. Yes. Robert, Dangerous Dan McGrew. Robert uh, Service. By Reaver, that by Robert Service. <laughs> yeah. Dangerous Dan McGrew, and then also uh, the cremation. Cremation of Sam McGee. Of Sam McGee. Yeah, great poem. <laughs> now, Sam Strange McGee, we've done that. Done we've done that before. Now, Sam McGee was from Tennessee, <laughs> where the cotton bloomed and blowed. That's and right. Why he left down south to come up north, the good Lord only knows. He was always cold, but that yeah. land of gold used to hold uh-huh. him like a spell. And he'd often say in his homely way that he'd rather live in hell. Great poem. Great poem. <laughs> yeah, no, that was. And uh, Anyway, Dad likes poetry, and then he writes some. He'll, and I didn't, I didn't uh, know he'd written that one. I, I said it to him. I said, where'd you hear that, Dad? He said, well, I heard it in my head. Oh, I said, come on, Dad, tell me who that is. I want to give credit. He said, well, no, no, I heard it in my head. Well, his mother told me one time, I got talking to her, and she'd say something about the Bible or something in the Bible. She used to say things like cleanliness is next to godliness, which isn't in the Bible. And she'd say, well, that's in the Bible. And I'd say, no, it isn't in the Bible, Grandma. I said, how do you know? It's what, 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 that, that, um, that, that's true. She said, a little bird told me, a little bird. I said, Grandma, that's not in the Bible either. She said, yes, it is. <laughs> well, I found out a few years later that was in the Bible, but I didn't know it. It's an obscure verse. She knew a lot of obscure verses. You know, you've heard of the great speckled bird, the great speckled yes. bird. You know, Roy Acuff, the guy that made the Wabash Cannonball song famous after he stole it, actually, Denver Darling. He was notorious for stealing songs that tell me down in Hollywood. But uh, uh, the other song that Roy Acuff was famous for singing was called The Great Speckled Bird. And The Great Speckled Bird is a phrase out of the Bible. And uh, it's an obscure kind of a passage. And people say, what does this mean? Well, obviously, The Great Speckled Bird represents God's people. And uh, the other birds... Uh, it was almost like they were saying the other birds wouldn't have anything to do with this bird, and this bird was speckled and weird-looking and acting, and, and like the the world won't have anything to do with God's people, and they spit on them and make fun of them, and this is true, of course, burn them at the stake and kill them. And like, uh, well, anyway, Beaton, get back to Antichrist. Uh, Cardinal Beaton in Scotland, he was out to murder all the Christian folk, and he was good at it. And uh, so finally... Uh, 
Well, he spoke when, when Knox was at St. Andrew's Castle before they, the bombardment started, the Sunday before the bombardment started, they asked him, would you be our, our chaplain? Oh, that excited him because he'd never been asked to do that kind of thing before. And he now had authority, had the Bible. It didn't have some Italian bishop over in, uh, that's what they call him. Well, why would you follow an Italian bishop over in Rome? That's what they used to say. Of course, they weren't Italians, you know, that didn't make sense to them. So they, they, he cut off from that and said, well, we're going we're gonna to use the Bible. We have a paper pope now. <laughs> the Bible's final authority. So the first Sunday, he preached a sermon at St. Andrew's Castle, and he preached on the meaning of the preposition ante in the Greek New Testament. The meaning of the preposition ante, and he made the point. It means in place of, of course, he directed that primarily in those days. The enemy was the Pope of Rome. He was powerful and dangerous, as were all the priesthood. At that very moment, Cardinal Beaton, at the behest of the Roman Pope, was trying to murder the people in St. Andrew's Castle, but he didn't know that yet. Well, that's a whole lot of stuff we got off on, and I'm glad we did, because it's important to talk about what an Antichrist is. An Antichrist is someone who says that I have final authority here, I am the court of last resort. Me alone. Me alone. That's Antichrist. Any single will, any single will like that that does that is Antichrist. I don't care whether it's in the context of, the, of uh, what's called a church, some other religious institution, a university, a country, like most of the world is. Most of the world is ruled by that principle, except the common law countries. And our government is very much like the government of Paul the Apostle lays out for God's people in First Timothy in detail there. But there is a, a, a subject I do want to get to, Roger, when if, it's, uh, it's, if it fits in and you haven't got a whole lot of things going. Well, I mean, this is always Good. kind of an impromptu setting and, and forum, but I did want to go okay. back because there was something that uh, kind of titillated me a little bit on this anti and the concepts you were going over earlier. Isn't it almost like it, you were saying it's an opposite or a dialectic? And what came to me was when you synthesize no, yeah. when, when you synthesize things, like when they synthesize a drug. And if it literally what they do is make a mirror opposite. And it's not what they originally had, but if you put it in a mirror, it's the exact opposite. So it's an anti in that, in a synthesis type yeah. situation. And I just wondered how those ideas and concepts fit into what you were saying. Well, they, the use of the preposition it, it can uh, be it can be used that way. Remember prepositions. Uh, you remember from bonehead grammar. I hope you do from the eighth grade. There are a certain number of parts of speech. What is it? Eight or nine? I don't remember something like that. But the preposition is the is the most important for this reason. Without prepositions, without the concepts of prepositions, we don't know what the relationship between things and things and things and people and people and people is. And if you don't know what relation the relationship is, then there is no such thing as logic or reason. There's nothing, no inferences, nothing. You know, if I say, for instance, that the book is on the table, the book is on preposition. Preposition describe the relationship between the book and the table. If I say, as the Bible says, that God's man and God's woman are in Jesus Christ, that's, it says that. And it uses a preposition that means moving into ice, moving into the Greek preposition ice. If I say that 
um, God's man is, that Jesus Christ is the paracletos. Well, that's what the Bible says. Well, what's para mean? Well, we have the word paragraph. That's a Greek preposition. It means beside, alongside of. Para, paragraph, parallel. Jesus Christ is alongside of us. He is the kletos. That means he's the family lawyer. He's making a, a case for us right now as I speak. He's making my case if he needs to. Before the Father is saying, all these people out here that are your, are your, uh, your people, I'm making the case for them. I've covered them. I've covered them with my own life. I gave up my own life. Remember, I paid the penalty for their law breaking. It's done. You can't, you can't, past, present, and future, all their sins are forgiven. So they're God's people. That's what Jesus Christ, he's the parakletos. But the para describes his relationship between, uh, between me and him. In, with, there's another one, with is a, describes the relationship between something, two things, or more things. Well, that's the way it is with the word anti. Anti is a preposition because it's a word that describes more particularly the relationship between two things or two people or a person or a thing. So if I say anti-Christ, that's describing a relationship. A relationship with who? With the, with the person who is the anti-Christ and Jesus Christ himself. He's claiming a certain relationship. He's claiming that he is anti, in place of, substitute for. Uh, it's related. Here's another uh, picture, word picture. In the New York Testament, there's the, the related preposition, which is from the same root, amphi, amphi. Well, amphi is a root we use in English, amphibian. What is an amphibian? An amphibian is a critter, a reptile, that lives on both sides of the water. Mm -hmm. He lives in the water, and he lives out of the water. A frog's out of the water, and he's in the water. That's an amphibian, an alligator, a crocodile, amphibians. And well, that's the word amphi. When uh, Peter and the other disciples were fishing, it says that they amphibolowed the fishing nets. Amphibolo. Well, what does that mean? That means on both sides. Balo means to throw, like a ball. Balo. We throw the nets on both sides, amphi, on both sides of the boat, amphi. Well, anti is a shade of that meaning, a synonym, in that it says that um, what, what is anti to the other thing is on one's on one side and one's on the other. That that idea is still there, too, see? Um, that's why we say it face-to-face, -face, mirror image, is one of the shades of meaning of anti, but ultimately, within the form anti, as opposed to amphi, anti means in place of, instead of. Uh, not, in other words, the, an antichrist doesn't come and say, hey man, I'm against Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm a demon worshiper. No, that's not fundamentally what he says. What he say? He says what the Pope says. He says, I'm here to help Jesus Christ. I'm here to help Jesus Christ. And by the way, he has delegated all authority to me down here on land, and I dispense it to my priesthood. <laughs> that is the very definition of antichrist. I'm here to help Jesus Christ. That's what they say. That's what an antichrist says. What does the Baptist preacher say who says he has all authority? What does the, the, the TV preacher say who says he has all authority? What does the, the Assembly of God preacher say, the Pentecostal preacher? And not all of them are that way. No, I'm, I'm saying if they're that way. If a Baptist, a Pentecostal, a, an Assembly of God are a one-man show, that is antichrist. There are many antichrists, said John the Apostle, among you. Look out for them. 
That's the very definition of uh, tyranny. Gather the gathering of all three powers of government into a single will. We see it all around us. But there is a subject, Roger, I wanted to get to because one of the listeners emailed me and uh, asked me, would you talk, Brent, about Bible translation? Because I have friends who are interested now in the Bible. They want to read the Bible. And I want to know what you think would be the, a good translation for somebody who's never really looked at the Bible, a good translation that they could get that would uh, work for them. And uh, so... If if you've got uh, anything else to say, no, well, I, I do to talk about that, Roger. Uh, but if you got something else you want to say, well, I may well, I may like to preface okay. that with this, and that is, I'm thinking of one or two particular people okay. that have gotten turned onto the political message here, and then it's taken them to a spiritual base that they have not ever experienced in their life before. And these people have told me that personally, okay. And uh, in fact, one of them said uh, said I never even paid any attention to the Bible till I. I started paying attention to this stuff, and now I'm in it all the time, and I'm going back and trying to uh, instruct my children on it, my grown children that were never exposed to it when I was raising them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, and the reason I mm-hmm. I, I kind of resonate with that is it's somewhat akin to my experience, you know, in many ways, uh, in the fact that I didn't get into the spiritual mm-hmm. side of this. I had a that kind of an upbringing. And I was conscious of those lessons that were taught to me when I was young, uh, but I drifted away from it. Um, and uh, but this information is what brought me back to it because all the connections are there. You know, you can see the things that are in the Bible and all those lessons that are uh, embedded in spirituality manifesting themselves in your day-to-day life and the suppression we're under and these day-to-day activities, actions, and things that are happening, events. And so it is a really interesting fact that Mm -hmm. the message that's the political message here resonates with people that have that kind of a tendency, and it brings them back to those roots. And that's one of the reasons that uh that you're here on fridays you know uh this came up yesterday it was a mention that you know roger you have uh, talk a lot on fridays about the bible and christ and stuff and and i was thinking about that uh, uh i didn't at the moment when that was said and mentioned yesterday i didn't respond to it but i thought about it since then and i was thinking you know brent when you and i started these shows we didn't i didn't know you translated your own bible i didn't know you had all this spiritual background and orientation uh all i knew is you had a, a great deal of expertise on the common law and i knew that that's what i was playing with and 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 helping people find and get back to and there wasn't anybody except my teacher that i knew that knew anything about it for the most part and so that's really what got us together and those early shows were mainly law oriented history or oriented and what has happened over the years and for those that don't know that may be new brent and i've been doing these friday deals for uh, we've lost track but it's somewhere between six and seven years now and i don't think we've maybe missed but four or five the entire seven years if it goes that long so what has happened with this friday appearance and uh, situation is it's morphed into this spiritual basis as we've grown Okay, and it 
always in the early earliest days i was in the afternoon and so it was a friday afternoon show that led us right into the weekend and it was a wonderful place to start planting those kind of messages so people would have something to think about over the weekend and it's uh, of course we've changed networks and changed times and a whole bunch of other changes in between but the friday show has morphed into more of a spiritual uh, uh, uh mentioning and and concentrated featured show because as we've grown in this and as the tyranny has grown it becomes more and more obvious that that's where the roots of all this are and it becomes more and more important to me to expose the people that are being brought by the political message to the spiritual foundation if in fact they're not there already so i appreciate the question from whichever listener sent you that and and i'm anxious to hear your uh your answer but I want. I think that's important background for for some of the newer people. Is we, our relationship here on Fridays was not oriented this way from the start. It has morphed and developed into this uh, because of situation, circumstances, and, and dare I say, necessity. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you did, Roger. And yeah, it has been between six and seven years. And all things in life, in true Christianity, the true Christianity, there is nothing. Nothing that's outside of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing. You know, say, well, I got, I go to church on Sundays, and then I do this the rest of the week. That's not, the, that's not Christianity. That's demonism. If you're, if you're a Christian person, a Christian man, a Christian woman, Jesus Christ has taken over everything in your life, and truly, he is Lord of everything, including all of these useful idiots that are promoting evil, including the demons, including Scratch himself. As Luther said, the devil may be the devil, but he's still God's devil. God made him, and he can't do anything but what God doesn't allow him to do it, and that's true. And if you can't come to that conclusion, the absolute and utter sovereignty of God, and by the way, God the Father has said that he has given all authority, all jurisdiction, all warrant to Jesus Christ, in the skies and down here on the land. And his kingdom is not only coming, it came, and it is coming, and it will continue to come. That's what the Greek word translated the coming of Jesus Christ, Latin, the advent of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean he's going to come. It means it ain't going to stop, and it's going to burgeon and burgeon and burgeon. I can't stop it. Uh, it is, it's coming. That, that word it has to do with the, the ever growing presence, sense of the presence of the king. That's what that word means, parousia, used in the ancient world to speak of emperors and kings that way. Well, that's what the coming of Jesus Christ is. But bottom line, no, the Pope of Rome or some preacher or some priest or some man of the cloth someplace isn't the final word on the word of God. It's application. What is the final word? You see, the word of God says what it says, and that ends it. Uh the the Bible says it. Somebody said the Bible says it, and that's it. Evie Hill used to say the Bible says it. I believe it, and, that, and well, he's no. Here's what he said: the Bible says that I believe it, and that's it is not proper because it doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. It's still it. That's the way it was. I got mm-hmm. it backwards. Mm-hmm. It's still it. It is the final word, and it there it is the court of last resort. There is nothing above it. But the question comes, who gets to decide what it means by what it says? What, what do I mean when I say that? I mean, 
who gets to decide how it applies in this specific instance to you and your circumstances, which, by the way, are different than anybody else who's ever lived before? Oh, it may be the same, but it's still a little bit different. And how does it apply to you? And the only person that is going to be held responsible for that decision is you. Well, how can you possibly make that decision if you don't try to know what it says? Well, the fact is you can't. You know, you're the judge. You're the lawyer at this point. You're the one that must discern the application of the will of God, the will of the sovereign, uh, beyond whose word there is no appeal. You're it. There isn't anybody else. And you'll never be able to stand before your maker in the end and say, well, so-and-so priest or so-and-so preacher or so-and-so professor or so-and-so Supreme Court decision or so-and-so my father said, and God's going to say to you, I'm not interested in that. You can't, be hide, you can't hide behind that. Uh, you, they may have taught you things. You may have listened. You may have learned. But you have to make the decision, and you're responsible for the decision you make. The soul that sinneth, said Ezekiel. It's, it's emphatic. The soul, that soul that sinneth, that means breathing soul, body. It's talking about physical life. It shall die. It shall die. Every man's responsible for Ezekiel was the prophet of individual responsibility. Uh, all the prophets were, but Ezekiel stressed that more than the others. And so we go to him for, to get the foundation of that lesson. Okay, when it comes to Bible translations, there's the court of last resort. There's the final word. Forget everybody else. You come to a point in your life, you've got to decide. And it takes a lot of work. The Bible says sweat. Study, the, the, the King James translates that word study. It means to sweat, to work up a sweat, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman. There's the word work, ergo, not ergo, ergon. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of proof, the word of proof. The Bible, hundreds of times, is called the word of proof. It is the evidence, and it's never translated that way. The word logos, the famous word logos, means in the old Greco-Roman uh, world of the law of the city, it means evidence, word of proof, testimony. And that's what you've got with the Bible. It is the evidence, and it is irrefutable evidence by any standard you'd apply to it. So you've got that. The question is, what translation is best? Now, translations in English... In the English-speaking world, which uh, the English-speaking world has been the leader, the leader in the idea of translating the Bible. There's no question about that. Why is that? Well, go back to the Reformation in Scotland. Reformation in Scotland had a recognized leader, John Knox. The Reformation in Germany had a recognized leader, uh, Martin Luther. The, Re the Reformation in Switzerland had a recognized leader, Ulrich Zwingli. The Reformation in all the European countries and had uh, the Huguenots had a recognized leader in France, but in uh, in uh, England, there was no recognized leader of the Reformation. There were many men that were prominent, but there was no real recognized leader. Why is that? Now this is fascinating, and this is true. The leader of the Reformation in England, proper, unlike Scotland, was the Bible. The Bible was what drove the Reformation. The Bible, translated into English, is what changed, changed the English-speaking world based out of England. What happened in Scotland? Well, what happened in Scotland was important, and it overcame the English-speaking world, too. 
two went together and formed a, a, an important alloy. But make the distinction. The Bible then came out of the, the Bible translations, you see, came out of, the, out of England primarily. John Knox was involved uh, from Scotland. He was one of the translators of one of the major trans, uh, English translations of the Bible called the Geneva Bible. When he was in exile in Switzerland, him and a half a dozen other fellows got together and said, we got enough English-speaking people here. There were hundreds exiled to try to keep them getting their heads cut off. Let's just translate the Bible. We've got everything we need. And they did. But John Knox still went back to Scotland, and he was in a, and to this day, I'm getting to this point, to this day, Scotland is not a common law country. There's a lot of funny, odd historic reasons for that, because traditionally the Celtic people were a common law people, just like the Germanic people from the north of Europe, the Scandinavians and the Saxons and the Dutch, and they were all common law people. They had what they called the Volkreich and the Celts law. And government was substantially the same and even strikingly so in particulars as Algernon Sidney says and it was but uh, through uh, reasons of history Scotland Scotland uh, took on the code of Justinian as did Saxony in northern Germany still yet that's that's why Hitler was able to do what he did because uh, Martin Luther encouraged the the um, uh, electors of Saxony to take on the Code of Justinian, the Roman law, so they could make quick decisions and fight the Pope. They couldn't fight him otherwise with the power dispersed the way it was. That was a mistake. I don't blame Luther for it. He was living in tough times, but that was true. By the way, Martin Luther was a Roman lawyer. You see, he was trained not only, he went to law school before he became a priest, and then when he became a priest, he just continued his sophistication of the code, of learning the Code of Justinian. Well, Bible translations uh, came out of the English-speaking world. They've been the leaders in the idea of translating. Of course, John Wycliffe, about the year 1375, was the first man to translate the entire Bible into English. And then when Bible translators started in the 14th century with John Wycliffe, the idea was let's just get it word for word on paper best we can. And, and his translation is in the same word order as the Latin Vulgate because he didn't have the original tongues. And it's uh, stilted, and it's hard to read in, in English because the word order isn't right. But he was a pioneer. He was trying something that never been tried before. But then by the time William Tyndale came along, and William Tyndale is the first man to translate the Bible into English from the original tongues, he got it almost all done, all of the New Testament, and then half the, of the Older Testament, and then they caught him and burnt him at the stake. Well, they did say, we're not going to burn you alive, we'll strangle you first and have mercy on you, which they did because he wasn't an Anabaptist. They hated those fellows. They burned them alive every time. Well, then after Tyndale, the idea was beauty with Tyndale. That started the age of beauty. Uh, the, the idea wasn't to be all that accurate. He was accurate, don't get me wrong. He tried to combine accurate translation with beautiful translation. And his uh, 80, 85, at least, percent of the King James Bible is William Tyndale's words and phrases. And the King James translators, King James gave them their orders. There were 54 of them. And he said, if it comes down to beauty versus accuracy, you choose beauty. That's what he told the King James translators. And you can see that in the translation. It's, it's accurate, but it can be more accurate, I guess, is the nice way to say it. 
It's the most beautiful piece of English literature available, ever produced, and it's the only piece of classic English literature that um, produced uh, by a committee. The only one, 54 men. But it was uh, beautiful, and it is beautiful, and it was translated at the time when the lilt of English had reached its zenith, during the days of Shakespeare. The Geneva Bible, uh, it was translated, the King James was translated to overcome the overpowering influence of the Geneva Bible, mm-hmm. which John Knox and others had translated in in um, Switzerland. And, and uh, of course, that Bible was translated to primarily, primarily translated to combat the idea of an Antichrist king. And uh, there are footnotes. It was the first Bible ever to have study notes. It was a study Bible, and it was published in a small size, small enough, they call it quarto, that the English-speaking people in England finally got a hold of it and started carrying it to church on Sundays by the hundreds of thousands. Well, they could see that the power of the Church of Rome, and then later the power of the Church of England, which was nothing but the Roman Church with a different pope, namely the monarch of England, Henry VIII to start, and then... Even Elizabeth today is head of the Church of England. Well, that's nothing but Romanism with a different pope. And their doctrines are the same. So that didn't help much. And so they, they had to combat the Bible being carried to church. People carry the Bible to church and look at it while the preacher was preaching, or the, the priest was preaching, and, and see where he was wrong. And he didn't know anything about the Bible, just as a Roman priest today seldom ever knows anything about the Bible. Why? Because that's not their final rule. The final rule of faith and practice to the Roman priesthood is the Code of Justinian, the canon law of the Church of Rome, which is the Code of Justinian put to an ecclesiastic purpose. So then the King James started the age of beauty and elegance in Bible translation. And that, uh, the King James, with government promotion and taxpayers' dollar, dollars, finally overcame the Geneva Bible in England. Overcame it. And, of course, it reigned supreme until 1995, I believe, uh, figures I read for the first time in the year 1995, 1611, to 19, no, no, 1611 it was translated. It didn't overcome the Geneva Bible until about 50 years later. So by, by uh, safely, 1675, the King James Bible dominated the English-speaking world. And then th- that domination continued because they called it, see, the authorized version. Authorized, yeah, that means by official authority of the King of England, this is the only Bible authorized. Read the preface or read the, the frontispiece. It says authorized to be read in the churches. It still says that, authorized. Well, from that, uh, about 1675 to 1995, the King James reigned supreme. In 1995, the New International Version took the field, finally, with more sales than the King James Bible, which is now in second place. And the age of beauty had ended. The age of beauty had ended. The age of beauty started to end with the translation of the New American Standard Bible in 1971. The complete Bible, New American Standard Bible, came out in 1971. That started the age of accuracy in Bible translations. The age of accuracy, beauty, didn't matter. Accuracy with readability mattered. The, the, um, all the Bibles after the King James, the, new, the Old American Standard and the Old Revised Version of England, all those uh, were just re- reworkings of the King James Bible. As a matter of fact, the Old Revised Version, 1881, was the first time 
that anything of any note, any attempt was made to improve the King James Bible. Now, the King James Bible came out with King James Bible came out with with edited editions. Later, made a lot of corrections to the 1611 version. They had more manuscript evidence. And they said that some of the words that the King James translators translated that admitted right in the notes. We don't have a clue what this word means because they didn't know back then. They were still doing study in ancient languages and archaeology and discovery of manuscripts to get a handle on the words. And the King James translators said in their preface that uh, there'll be more work done, much more work, a lot of words that we don't really have a strong handle on. They weren't Orientalists. People brag about how smart the King James translators were. They're smart guys. But there were a lot of men in the world at that time that knew the languages and knew Hebrew better than them, frankly. Uh, and Greek, but they knew it well, well enough to do a good job. I'm not, but I, I have to say, have to say that uh, they admitted their own ignorant ignorance in the preface, and the preface isn't mm-hmm. published with the Bible anymore. The King James, you can find it now on the internet. And you can read those things. Well, yes, go ahead. Yeah, Brent, can you hear me well? Yes. Well, uh huh. Good. Say, this is Bob. Um, when you were talking anti, anti, yeah, well. I want to bring up another word that's not the same, but it's in the same vein, and we often heard of it being the vicar of Christ, and the word vicarious, you know, living through someone, and I got to looking at it, and even made a discovery that I'd never put together before, but the idea that the Pope, or the local priest in a Anglicans, you know, they often call them the vicar. Um, somehow they're a replacement, you know, they're, they're <clears> the second. In and I'd never picked up on that right. before the, the relationship of the word vicarious or to be the vicar of yeah. and vice, vice as in vice president, the second in command, vic, vic, yeah. vicar, vicar. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. just thought I'd throw that in. I've always mm-hmm. enjoyed the interplay. Well, I'm glad you did because <laughs> Go ahead. I'm glad you did because it helps stress what I'm trying to stress. You're what? I say we're on our way north, by the way. It's a little off topic, but we are in Tiffin. Oh, okay. You'd be with that, Roger. You're in where, Bob? Okay. Well, it's going to get cold. Tifton? Tifton, Tifton, Georgia. I know where that is. Headed on. Okay. Well, the Hey Roger. Yeah, Dave. You know, we have even Hold on. Let's Dave, yes. Okay. Yeah, uh for I, I just wondered if you guys knew what you get when you cross a Catholic with a Baptist. You get a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> I yield. Oh, I thought I heard them all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's good. Well, um, that's important, that word vicarious. You see, even the Roman priest brought into the Protestant Reformation what they call vicarious atonement. And they again, they use Latin words because that's the tongue that they knew well. They weren't allowed to speak anything else. Remember, Rome wanted to keep secret everything the priesthood did. And so the only tongue that was allowed to be spoken or written in the universities while these Roman priests were being educated was Latin. And that's a tongue, of course, that had been long dead. Nobody knew it, but the people 
at the universities. And of course, they used Latin in the mass and that nobody knew what that meant. And they'd say, Hacus corpus meus, this is my body. And people didn't have a clue what they were saying. And so the they thought they were saying hocus pocus. And that's where the word hocus pocus came from. Hocus pocus. This is the body and blood of Christ. Well, that's silliness. It's so silly. It's so silly. Well, I guess it'd be funny if it wasn't if it wasn't so destructive to eternal salvation and the, the true doctrines of the Bible. But, well, getting back to the beauty thing, we're talking about uh, beauty of, uh, the age of beauty lasted a long time. And uh, the New American Standard, and by the way, the New American Standard is without question the most literal, the most literal translation available in the English tongue. There are others that claim to be literal, Strong's literal translation. And then there's uh, uh, Farrar Finn, which we've talked about here. Uh, those are all good. And then there's another one by the fellow named Rotherham. Rotherham, it's, it's called a literal translation. But and they all work hard at it. I mean, I even call mine as literal as I can make it. But I like to call it instead raw. Raw because it is utterly impossible, utterly impossible to translate the Bible word for word and really get all the sense you want to get. You can't do that. Why? Because there's more packed, more, these English, uh, these uh, Greek and Hebrew words, uh, which the Bible was originally written in, uh, as often as not, pack more freight of meaning than one English word will get or two English words even. Now what I've done, and this, I, I haven't seen anybody else do this, but a, I thought it was a good idea. I use a lot of hyphenated words to try to to get the whole sense of the Greek or Hebrew word. Uh, I don't always do that. I don't do it unless I have to, but I do it because I want to try to be as word for word as I can at the same time get the the stress, what the author wants to stress across to the reader. Um, every translation struggles to do that. So we went from the age of beauty to the age of accuracy. That's the New American Standard Bible and others. The, the Amplified Bible came out to course, Dewey Lockman, a farmer from uh, southern Illinois, sold his farm, moved to southern California, bought land nobody wanted, and what is now La Habra, California, and planted avocado trees and made a fortune. And he took his money and he said, I, I think America ought to have its own translation of the Bible. And, and uh, people are, are uh, saying they can't read the King James. The King James, of course, is, stresses beauty more than accuracy. So he had enough money to hire men and pay them for their time so they could translate the Bible, and he did. And those translators, they said their names would never be, would never be published. But I knew some of them, so I knew who they are. And if I said their names, you'd, you'd say, well, I don't know who those people are anyway. Well, that's probably true. But uh, most of them are gone, I think. Yeah, most of them are gone now. Some of the, some, I know some of the students are left that were there that helped the professors that uh, did the translation. But it is accurate, and uh, the Lockman Foundation, Louis Lockman took his money and formed a foundation, and him and his wife, and they continue, they've updated and tried to revise that translation. Now, just recently, well, let me, I'm gonna go ahead, then I'll come back to the New American Standard. Just recently, or let's go ahead. So the age of, uh, age of beauty in English translations, then the age of accuracy, took over, but that didn't last long. That lasted from about 1971 to 1981, and then the New America, the New International Version came out, and then that version stressed readability, not accuracy, and not beauty. It's just got to be readable. 
And they didn't even pay that close attention to whether or not it was saying uh, what the original tongue said. As a matter of fact, the people on the translation team, the New International Version, ha were and are still out to change it, to give different shades of meaning, to promote the political points of view they want to promote. And that's what the New International Version is. So I say stay away from it. It's very popular because it is readable. And there are many parts of it that do a good job of getting the point across. But there's no question that that Bible is all about destroying the distinctions between the male and the female. No question. And even to the point of having lesbians and lesbian-minded and lesbian-accepting translators on the translation team and uh, sodomites. You say, well, how do you know? I don't know any of them. I just, I just know what I read, and I'm reporting to you what I read, and I, when I... I see what that Bible says. I said, this isn't right. That's what I say. This is not right. They're, they're clearly and intentionally twisting and trying to obscure the distinctions between men and women. And of course, when you do that, you get lesbianism and sodomy. That's what you end up promoting. Well, there's no distinction between men and women. But that's inevitable to think that. So I, that, now that's the age of readability. And we're still in now the age of readability over accuracy. Over accuracy. The New American Standard comes out every 20 years with an update. They've just come out with an update. They can't sell. Here's the, the sad thing. The New American Standard has fallen and fallen and fallen in sales because people want readability more than they do accuracy. And nobody's saying, I don't care if that's readable. It's, it is inaccurate. As a matter of fact, they're promoting evil. The New American Standard, the only thing about the New American Standard that people can complain about is, number one, it uses some, it uses the minority text of the New Testament and not the majority text. And that's what the King Jamers complain about. But um, there's not, in the difference between those manuscripts, there's not a, uh, any variation of the original tongues, the manuscripts of the original tongues that would change any major doctrine, any fundamental, any foundational doctrine of Christianity. Now, the gal that sent me an email also asked about the New King James Version. What about the New King James Version? Well, I'm also I'm familiar or new. Well, uh, one, I knew well one of the translators of the New King James Version. And what they did was, with the New Testament, they used the majority text that uh, would go along with the Textus Receptus, and they uh, updated some of the false false translations, the inaccurate translations of the old King James Bible. You say, well, there are no, some people say there are no inaccurate translations. I have friends, close friends that say God has chosen to preserve his word in the King James Bible. Well, that's uh, an argument from history. Uh, I like to look at the manuscripts and decide what I believe the best rendition would be given the information we have. But uh, I don't quarrel with them anymore. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that God has chosen. That, that is uh, equivalent. If you say God has chosen the King James Bible to preserve the accuracy of his word in English and no other translation, that's the same thing that Rome still yet says yet today about Jerome's Latin Vulgate. They say God has chosen the Latin Vulgate to preserve the meaning of the Bible. And that's their, that's their Bible. They will not go to the original tongues. The final word is the Latin Vulgate. Well, the Latin Vulgate was translated by a fellow named Jerome who took several Latin translations that had been made 
and tried to bring them together and provide one accurate translation. He made some mistakes, by the way. And that's one of the things that sparked the Protestant Reformation was that he made mistakes. You see, it is impossible to translate the Bible and be perfectly accurate. So when people say, what is the inerrant Bible? The inerrant Bible is the Bible in the original tongues. It's not all these translations. Well, then can we get the word of God? And the answer is yes, we can and we do. And these translations that we've used, such as the King James and the New Revised and New American Standard, uh, Martin Luther made this point after he translated the Bible into German. He said, we get, we get the point. And if you are sincere and you've got a Bible translation that the men work for accuracy, uh, you're going to get the message. For, for example, if you know your English Bible well and you read it daily and try to understand it, you'll know more and understand more about the Bible and what God wants for you than most all clergymen in the United States and around the world. Why? Because hardly anybody, I've learned this through experience over the years, hardly anybody regularly reads their Bibles. Anybody. And that includes the clergy. There are exceptions, but they're few and far between. That's why David said, I know more than all my teachers. David, king of Israel, I know more than all my teachers because... I ruminate on your word. I chew it like cud. Most people don't do that no matter what their vocation in life is. So don't neglect it. It'll change your life. You get that book down in uh, Word of God and Mental Sod, it will change your life. Okay, what translations then? What translations do I recommend? The uh, New King James? And I boil it down. And this uh, person that asked this question, Roger, boiled it down to the New King James or the, the New American Standard. Well, that's a pretty good way to boil it down. Of course, you've got the winterized version. Uh, I don't want to fail to mention it. I believe it's raw. My version is raw. And uh, I don't see that any other versions try to give you the raw truth of what it says, because if it did, people wouldn't buy their translations. It'd be too offensive. It wouldn't appeal to a mass audience. It, see, the New American Standard, one of the things that makes me feel better about it, even now, is it's not selling very much. Um, it's not selling. And the reason it's not selling is because it's accurate. It tells the flat truth. And that is never popular. It never has been. It never has been popular. There's always been people against what God said because what we call the hard truths of the Bible offend most everyone. I had a fellow tell me the other day, and this Christian man, but I was just talking about the sovereignty of God to him, he, and boy, he, all of a sudden, it was as though he was ready to pull out a dagger. He got real adamant because he does not accept what the Bible says. It can't mean that. It can't mean that, he kept telling me. I said, well, I don't know. It looks to me like that's what it's saying. And uh, the Bible says that a lot. A lot of things about the word of God and what he's revealed to man that are offensive to the natural mind. And that's why it's always been a book that's been maligned and burned and chopped and things aren't any different today. The only difference today is people aren't burning Bible translators the way they used to. They're burning <laughs> Bibles, but they're not burning the translators. So I suppose we can Brent? count that fortunate, you know. Uh, when, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. What are the main uh, parts of the Bible that you see with people... Brent, what are the main parts of the Bible that you see people, uh, you know, gasping at the most? I'm kind of curious your experience. Well, 
I'm going to, I'm glad you asked, Cody. Good to hear from you. I'll mention that. Let me finish this up real quick and say what I think a good Bible translation would be and move on. A good Bible translation would be the New American Standard. All of them that comes out in different editions, they're all good. Uh, there are problems with the New American Standard. One of it, one of it, one of the problems is uh, all of the translators are solidly pre-mill, pre-millennium. That means dispensational, fundamentally, and all of them are. That's true. But that doesn't uh, always affect. Uh, that doesn't come across in the translation that I've seen. However, I, I want people to know that I'm not strongly pre-mill or dispensational. That's not my point of view. But. Um, but I like that translation. The New King James Bible, I like it too. And I can say this, because I know some of the fellows were on those two translations, I can say they were sincere men. One of the men that uh, very instrumental in my understanding of the Hebrew tongue was one of the translators of the New King James Bible. And then three or four others, very instrumental in my understanding of the New Testament Greek, were translators of the New American Standard Bible. And uh, so I, I understand those men, and I understand uh, when I read what they've translated, I understand it, and I really believe, no matter what their theological point of view, and of all of those, the one that translated the New King James, that came primarily out of Dallas Seminary. Now, the translator I knew wasn't from Dallas, but I know who those translators are down there. And they were hardcore majority text. And the New American Standard Bible translators are not hardcore majority text folk. And I say that for the benefit that would know the difference. So when it comes down to it, yes, the New King James Bible is a good translation. And the, the uh, New American Standard Bible is a good translation. But if you want a raw translation, I don't want to neglect to say that get the winterized version. Go to www.commonlawyer.com. And uh, you can find there, click on the button that says books, and you can find the winterized version of the Bible. I call it a common lawyer's, a common lawyer's Bible. Translates and annotates from the original tongues, over 15,000 footnotes, 130 appendices, tracing major themes throughout the warp and the woof of the text of the context of the Bible. I find those to be helpful even to me. And I put it in that form. I did not translate my translation for mass appeal. My, my target audience for my translation is me. and always has been me. And I got the idea, and it's true, I got the idea from this old preacher at home named Jess Barber, and you can read about it, I put it in the preface, I got the idea when he was a preacher at home, and he didn't learn how to read till he was over 20, his wife taught him, and they were homesteading in Oklahoma, his wife taught him how to read, and then when he got to reading, he, he He's, people got to ask him to speak at church because he could speak. He could. He was a talker. He was nothing but a ranch hand at first, but he could talk. And um, he really studied and studied and studied his Bible. And he took his Bible and he made himself a Bible that he could take. If he wants to put notes in where he was speaking from, he could insert the notes in there to where they were bound in there with these uh, clips. And then he could open his Bible up and have his notes right there. And he, could, he carried that. Instead of stuffing papers in his Bible, which he did for years, uh, he had his notes permanently in there. Well, when he passed away, he was a good friend of my great-granddad on my mother's side. When he passed away, he gave that Bible to him and my dad. And then my granddad, great-granddad passed away, and dad had that Bible. He eventually gave it 
to this guy, guy's name, uh, Jess Barber, gave it to his daughters. I don't know what happened to it after that. But I said, in the days of computers, why can't I do that? I can make a Bible. I can put. I can type the footnotes, make footnotes right there in the Bible. I'll have everything I need. And if the footnotes are too long, I'll put them in an appendices. So I've got 130 appendices in the back. And I've got a Bible. And when I open it up, or whether I've got it on the Internet or hard copy, there's everything I need, all the studying I've done, uh, 15, 000, over 15,000 footnotes. I've got more than enough to say. And so when I go through the Bible, as we do on Sunday mornings on Patriot Soapbox, and you can go to the website and find out how to click on the links and listen to me on Patriot Soapbox, I just use those notes primarily as I go through the Bible. Now, uh, so the New American Standard. I'm, let uh, me just stop for a second, Brent, because I want to promote. I want to. I want to promote your Sunday, your Sunday service, because you do teach out of your own Bible, and some of the differences in the way you phrase things and 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 put forth uh, the ideas and concepts are real different from what I've previously been experienced to exposed to and i just wanted to promote it for the audience that that's a if you want to get a feel for brent's bible go listen to some of brent's in church services and you'll get a real good feel for it yeah oh good morning thank you roger and i do want people to listen and uh, i don't i don't profess to have all the answers but i thought i heard Daryl's voice. Did yes, I? you did. He was just. Uh, we both heard that. Right. Hey, Daryl. I thought you'd be out taking care of uh, odds and ends oh, for he, your weekend. He no, he's there. I think. Hey, Daryl. Yeah, yeah. I I've been doing that all morning here while I listened. Um, putting. I'm putting. <laughs> I'm putting easels together so I can uh, put uh, information up on the stage and people can actually do it the old-fashioned way and write it down mm-hmm. uh, yeah but uh i had a question about a couple <clears throat> observations and a question uh brent about the bible i i bought your winterized uh, uh bible i don't know five years ago probably but um my, I was curious as to all the uh, all the Bibles that I have a number of copies here. I even have a uh, Blue Lodge Freemason Bible. That's a disgusting thing. Um, <coughs> the uh, well, it it it's disgusting because they're brazen about they they worship Nimrod uh, all throughout it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 just a vile, disgusting thing to see that that in there. But that being said, um, uh, why I had a couple questions. One of them is why why has all the uh, the Bibles that I've ever seen? Why do they remove uh, the name of Yah and the Tetragrammaton? And uh, because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that is a specific YHWH, and there is no equivocation in who YHWH is, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, whereas uh, mm-hmm. Elohim and Lords and the L and so on and so forth uh, can be very confusing in the minds of uh, of many. And then my second observation is almost all the Bibles I've read 
Uh, and to the degree I've read it, uh, seem to conflate or leave open the idea of misidentifying or not even identifying who the Judean is and the Israel is versus those that would call themselves Jews. And the, 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 the Jew word's been used to conflate between a Judean, Judah, and Israel. And this is, I think, led to the demise of a uh, and complete inversion of perception, of particularly the, the evangelical and charismatic uh, Dispiites and Cyrus Schofield um, followers. Uh, it's... Um, so, I mean, I said a lot there, but I, I see the uh, misuse of words, and uh, those are just a couple of the high points. Uh, what's mm-hmm. your? I'm interested in your point of oh, view on that. I agree. And, uh, yeah, in the in the winterized version, the Book of Ruth. I have I have head notes to every book, and the Book of Ruth I have a long head note, probably three or four pages long in small type, um, going through the idea who are the Jews, and the and describing what I've concluded the Book of Esther is the beginning, God's revelation of the beginning of the obfuscation of the identity of Israel, um, and then the word Jew pops up there. And the, for the first time in that book, in a reciprocal verb form, the well translated into English, Judaizers or being Judaized, uh, the the Persians were Judaized in that book. That doesn't mean they became Israelites. That means that they embraced Babylonian Judaism, which is Babylonian Babylonian religion, and still is yet today. That's where they embraced it, and that's where the obscurity, as God had promised in His law. That's where the obscurity of the identity of the descendants of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and through Jacob. That's where it all began. And God promised to do it, and it's increased in intensity ever since. And today, of course, uh, people are jumping up and saying, we're Jews, we're Jews, we're Jews, we're Jews, we're the Jews. No, we're the Jews. No, we're the Jews. I'm telling you, don't pay any attention to them. Because God promised to obscure that identity. And now there is a difference between an Israelite and a Jew. To put it in simple terms, this is my conclusion for what it's worth. A Jew and Judaism is a, are a couple of words that bespeak a religious point of view that's very, very demonic and very pagan. That's what a Jew is. And that's the way the Bible uses the word in its primary sense. Of course, you made the point about the word that denotes whoever lives in Judah. That's another way to, uh, another use of the word. But in all events, the identity of Israel is obscured. I came at that backwards. I wanted to get to the other question about Yah and the name of God, but I'll, I don't have time I can get to that. But it is important to distinguish Israel from Jew. Clearly, those are two different words. Of course, the word Jew is a Anglicization of the word that bespeaks the tribe of Judah. When you see the word Jew in the Bible, you're you're looking at a translation of the in the Newer Testament of a transliteration of the word Yehuda of the Hebrew Older Testament. Yehuda was the fourth son of Jacob, and he Jacob is Israel, 
and the fourth son, twelve the twelve sons who fathered the twelve tribes, Judah, is the fourth son and the ancestor of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was of the tribe, remember he's the tribe, the lion of Judah. But Judah, of course, was no saint. You can go read about that. We're going through that now, or we did did on Sunday morning. It's been a while. But Judah, Judah is uh, the name of the tribe, translated Jew later in the New Testament, but comes to mean people who live in that area called, that area of land called Judah. Well, that's what I know about that, but I say a lot more about it in different places of the Bible. And uh, if you've got a... a, a um, version five years old. I've updated it probably five times from then. From then, and added probably um, a couple hundred pages of notes. <laughs> that made a lot of corrections too. I have found mistakes, <laughs> a lot of mistakes. But I keep trying. I'll keep working at it. Uh, did you say something, Daryl? No, I was. Daryl? I was just smiling out loud. Oh. Okay. Who? Oh. Which one of you? Which okay, one of y'all? Not- which one of y'all's got the crow? going on in the background is that you daryl yeah i hear those yeah i got i got a i got a murder of crows here okay yeah <laughs> murder okay so then uh, then you mentioned around about the uh, name of god the holy name of god fascinating i talked about a while ago about the parousia in the New Testament, which is translated the Advent. You know, it was the first Advent and the second Advent. English, we say the coming. Jesus Christ is coming, say the bumper stickers. And boy, is he ticked. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Well, that is, uh, uh, in, in the New Testament, that's the way the, that word parousia also is a repeat of the concept of the name of God. And uh, people say Yahweh. There's no way that that Hebrew word could be two syllables. It's got to be three. It is three. And so the Germanic people had it right as far as the syllables go, but they had the, they, they harshened the Hebrew pronunciation. They said Jehovah. Jehovah, three syllables. Well, that's right. But it's not Jehovah, it's Yahuha. Yahuha. Sounds kind of funny. Yahuha, but that word is the verb that appears a hundred, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, the verb of undefined action. There is no verb of being, B-E-I-N-G, in the Semitic tongues. No verb of being, no verb for was, is, are, has. They don't have a verb like that. To them, if something didn't have action, it didn't exist. You know, in, in the Western world, we think there's such a thing as existence, and then we struggle and fight about it, independent of action. You know, who was it? Descartes, the French philosopher, crawled inside of an oven and shut the door, which isn't something I'd ever advise to do, by the way. But he crawled inside, shut the door, and he thought if he got in there and stayed long enough, he could he could contemplate the matter and figure out if he has being. And he came out after several hours and it said that he said, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. Well, big deal. Come on. Um, but that's what... French philosophers do. So there is no verb of being in Hebrew. They don't go into all those discussions and all those philosophical thoughts. They just say, look, if it doesn't have action, if it ain't moving, it doesn't exist. Uh, For us, life is action. And that's true of the Hebrew Older Testament and the Semitic mind. Action. There is no, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. 
and the earth was formless and void. That's not what it says. No, the earth, it says, became formless and void. Well, that word translated be, uh, became, I translate it that way. Most translations, most translations don't. It became formless and void. It happened, and I translate the name of God, he happened. Third person singular. That's what I believe it means. He happened. And his happening, he is the happening one. He is the one that makes it happen. He is the one that is happening. And he, because he is the one that is happening, he is the one that is coming. And he's coming on stronger and stronger like horseradish all the time. That's what that word really try, uh, does communicate. And, but if there's any, why isn't it translated that way? Why is it translated the Lord? And the reason is this. Because the early translators of the Bible into English, including the King James translators, didn't know Sikkim from Kamir about the Hebrew tongue. And they looked where to find out. They looked to the rabbis. Yep. That's where they looked. And the rabbis taught them about the Hebrew tongue and taught them a lot of damnable lies. Because by the, that time, the Kabbalist, the Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic doctrines of Judaism were in full form. And Mohammedes had become the chief rabbi of Europe. And he was, well, he was a downright low and dirty. And that, remember, the, the Hebrews hate the Bible. They'll do anything to obscure what it says. Yes, Why? How do I know that? Well, Jesus Christ said so. <laughs> all of the all of the books of the New Testament are written foremost against Babylonian Judaism. Clearly, the gospel records are the, the record of Jesus Christ coming head on in a crash with with what we call Babylonian Judaism, scholasticism, logic, reason, anything to obscure the facts of the matter. And then you get to the epistles. You've got Paul the Apostle. He was, he was the yellow-haired boy of Babylonian Judaism, the upcoming one, the one who had equivalent of two or three doctor's degrees. He was scholastic to the hilt. He wrote quite a few books in the New Testament. He never mentioned that trash once except to say as a pile of human feces. And he used a word stronger than that. And if you want to know what raw word the raw translation uses, uh, Go look at what I've got. I have, I've changed it two or three times. I want to get what Paul says, but not be offensive just to be offensive. But that's what he says. And then you go to the book of First John, Second John, Third John, written clearly, head on against Babylonian Judaism. You know all things, he said, not them. See, that's the way he talks. And then hey, Ephesians and Galatians, the same thing. And I'll take a breather here in just a second. But let me finish because I'm out of time, and then I'll let you talk. I'll shut up for a minute. So they learned from the rabbis, and the rabbis said, don't mention the name of God. You, you, can't, you can't write it in there. So when you come to the name of God, Yahuwah, which means he happens. And by the way, it's not enough to say the sound of the word. I believe God wants to know what his name means. So it ought to be translated. People in the King James days had learned from the rabbis, they just translated the Lord. They didn't translate. They substituted the word, the Lord. And then later people said, well, well, we'll translate the way it sounds. People like the sound of it. It pops like a, like a pretty balloon in their head when they hear it. Well, that's not what God wants either. What God wants is for you to know what the name means. It means he happens, he is coming, and he's coming on hard and increasingly exponentially faster and faster. Now, somebody started to say something, Roger. I'll get Yeah, they did. I, I, I do too, but I want to mention the fact that they substituted the word Lord, and that was a very, very common feudal era term too. Do you think there's any connection there? 
Not, well, yeah, you're right about that, of course, but not in that case, because what they did was they took the vowel points that the medieval rabbis had added to the text, took those vowel points, and they did a lot of screwing with the text and doing that, screwing it up, I mean, and they took those vowel points for the word Lord, and they took those vowel points and put them with the word Yahuwah, and so... The vowel points are for the word Adonai in Hebrew, which means Lord. And uh, the uh, consonants are the name of God, Yahuha. Mm -hmm. But um, Lord appealed to them. Maybe it was because they were English-speaking people. There's no question he is Lord. By the way, Yahuha in the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, you see that over and over because Jesus Christ identifies himself and he refers to passages that talk about and define Yahuwah. That's who Jesus Christ is. Go ahead. Hey, Raj. Yeah, who was trying to say something? Is hey, that John Kassarab. Uh, hey, John. Uh, hey. I'm calling in asking for prayers for Kathy. Okay. Kathy is on her way to the hospital today. Uh, she's got to be uh, hooked. She's got to have a chest tube put in. And uh, she, we're going to put her on dialysis. Uh, she's blown up like a balloon. Oh, I'm so sorry. Saying that she's going to be in there for days. She's very near. She could very nearly die here shortly. So we really need some prayers for Kathy. Well, thank uh, you. Keep them up, if you will. Thank you for letting us know that, John. And uh, you, you got them, and she does too. Okay. And I'm sorry to hear that's not particularly good news. No, it's not. And they're giving her a real hard time about vaccine status and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like they, they, they told her they won't do a transplant because she's not vaccinated. Right. Well, they're doing that to other people, too. Right. Right. All right. Just wanted to ask. Um, sure. Sorry, John. Thank you for letting us know again. Okay. And uh, she's in good spirits, but, you know, she's really. Well, worried. she's always got it. She's always in good spirits, even in, in light of all the problems that she's had to suffer through that, you know, really all the times we've worked together and known each other, I didn't know she had all those problems. She's never come forth with it and she's never let it affect her attitude. So, uh, but I'm sure sorry to hear that bad news, John, and I sure appreciate you letting us know. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay, well, that's a, a heck of a way to kind of bring the show to a close Roger? today, yes? Yes? Well, uh, is it appropriate here that we pray before we get off? Well, why don't why, well, that might be a very good idea. Brent, if you, would you lead us in that, please? I don't know how if you, you have much familiarity with Kathy, but uh, she's a mighty good gal, and it's just uh, that's really bad news. Not we kind of had an idea some of that uh, yeah, was going on, but not to this degree, and so it's a uh, uh, you know that's sad tidings. If you if you would please briefly, let, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you humbly and confess our sins and the sins of our fathers and the sins of our nation. But we know that you promised, in spite of our sins, to prosper us according to your timing and according to your your pleasure and we pray that you would destroy those destroy those who are adamant and are your enemies and your enemies are trying to destroy your people we know you know that but we know that you want us to ask that if it be your will not ours but your will that they be destroyed that you do what you want to do 
And again, we confess that we bring problems on ourselves. But in this case, we ask specifically, specifically that you would give Kathy absolute peace and you would give her absolute victory in this difficult situation. And Lord, we really want you to to provide our desires. We want you to save her life. We ask these things in the name of the great healer and the only healer, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Well, Amen. back to you, Roger. Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, I was going to promote here at the end. Uh, of course, I'm on with Thumper following Brent's in church segment on Sunday morning. And this Sunday, I'm going to do uh, the whole background and history of the tax system. So if you're new and you've not heard that before, uh, you might find that very interesting and educational. And uh, if it wasn't for John and Glenn, um, there'd be that information would not be known. And I'm very fortunate that I was associated with them and uh, was privy to all that and, and learned it. And so the that information in the book they wrote to give you an idea is the first time that information has been in print in over 250 years so that's what we're going to cover sunday on thumper's show brent i don't know if you've even ever heard that before but it's quite interesting the origins and the tax code and the way it developed in england and how it was transferred over here and how the changes were made to protect the guilty so uh that's going to be sunday which i look i really look forward to that actually so uh 11 to 1 central time I do too, Roger. on thumper forward to it. okay good brent well i'll see you on sunday after you close out and turn it over to us and otherwise it's got daryl's bunch is having a big get together there's a bunch of them in gadsden already and i'm sure y'all will have some great uh dinners tonight and introducing each other and have a wonderful day tomorrow and daryl all of our thoughts will be with you well, I appreciate that, and uh, uh, I think there's a lot of people rolling in right now. So, Brent, I enjoyed your uh, your overview and conversation today. I uh, I, I find that uh, the more I learned it, I, I'm really not anti-Semitic. I just happen to be anti-semantic, and uh, <laughs> your your um, your your elucidation your elucidation in the last fifteen.